Uh, one of the advantages of having a church that doesn't have our own building that we own is that you're forced to be creative in how you do the church strategy. Uh, where you meet, you have to think of places. So, for example, we, we meet here for Sunday services in a school and, um, you know, we uh, have our office, church office in Johnson Street um, and I next to me on one side is a, uh, a massage chair outlet where you can buy your massage chairs and they've offered me free service anytime I want to go in there just to... Yeah, I've never used it, but on the other side I have an illustrator and uh, film studios and an engineers. Um, our playgroups meet in two different community halls, one in Northcote, one in North Fitzroy. Uh, our youth group meets in another church building in West Brunswick. Our community groups meet, meet in different houses across the inner north. Uh, it's like what we're trying to do here is we're trying to create a church with soft edges so that it's not hard to kind of get into the church, that we're sort of out there and people can find out about us because of where we're located. And, and, um, and you know, it's not like there's this big sort of dark wall they have to cross over. Um, and we're doing this intentionally because the second part of our vision as I prayed was to, and this is on the front of your booklet, to imagine a church community whose active and transformative uh, presence is dispersed in the community like yeast in dough. And so what this means is that whenever, where, wherever Merry Creek people are, uh, whether it's on your own or in a group or in an organised church activity or in an informal gathering or whatever you're doing, that you're bringing the kind of transformation that Jesus has to offer to the people of the inner north of, of Melbourne. Transformation such as introducing people to God, people experiencing forgiveness of their sins, the poor being fed, the sick being healed, the lonely finding relationships, People who have only experiencing dysfunctional, who've only experienced dysfunctional family, family and relationships, experiencing healthy relationships, the persecuted being defended, systematic justice being righted, those on the margins being brought to the centre. So that's what Jesus wants for the world, and that's what Jesus wants for the inner north, presumably, because we're part of the world, and that's what we want um, to be part of at Mary Creek. We've put ourselves out here as God's servants to offer ourselves as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. This is our true act of worship. Now, we've made some good progress and established some effective strategies. But with all the elements of our vision, you know, we're two years in, got a long way to go. There's so much more we could do. My hope is that one day we'll be able to drive around the inner north, drive up sort of St George's Road or High Street or down Johnson Street in Collingwood or, you know, up to Preston or wherever, and that we'll know in a mental map of our mind that there's, there's Merry Creek people that meet over there, Merry Creek people that meet over there, bringing this transform, um, transformative presence um, that comes through Jesus. This um, gospel in word and action. Now, I've called the talk uh, this morning... Uh, relationships in a culture of separateness. And I've done this because partly what drives this vision is that so many people around us, even people who are part of this church even, essentially experience so social isolation. Uh, the Conversation website uh, published an article in 2014 about social isolation in Melbourne, and it said this. So what exactly is social isolation? 
Socially, socially isolated people don't have strong social connections or interactions with other people, placing them at risk of low self-esteem, higher levels of coronary heart disease, depression, anxiety, and below normal levels of happiness or subjective well-being. It continues. A community snapshot of metropolitan Melbourne, Melbourne Vital Science 2014, reveals a number of factors likely to influence social isolation. And the report reveals that in Melbourne, one in five households spent more than 30% of their household income on housing, and it shows that um, incidences of family violence have increased by 16% between 2012 and 13. More than 13% of youth aged 15 to 19 years are not engaged at all in work or study. And finally, more than 18,500 people are estimated to be homeless in metropolitan Melbourne. And the article suggests the following strategies to the city to remedy social isolation. It says, it would be safe, this is what it would look like, the neighbourhood. It would be safe, attractive, socially cohesive and inclusive and environmentally sustainable. It would include diverse and affordable housing. There would be convenient public transport, walking and cycling infrastructure that was linked to employment, education, public open space, local shops, health and community services and leisure and cultural opportunities. It would be a neighbourhood that provides for the needs of all people across the lifespan, children, youth, adults and older adults, embraces diversity and difference and has active, informed and engaged residents. Now, we don't want to make the mistake of assuming that having lots of people around each other, you know, just seeing lots of people reduces social isolation. Um, in an article just last week in the Huffington, Huffington Post, the writer said, a writer said, big crowds and busy streets do not always help to create a sense of connectedness. For many city residents, they actively contribute to feelings of alienation. Rapid urbanisation is exacerbating this challenge as walkable spaces shrink, parking lots replace playgrounds, and high-rises eclipse neighbourhoods, all of which make it increasingly difficult to maintain a healthy sense of community and belonging. New arrivals, especially immigrant populations who may not speak the language, can struggle to establish a sense of belonging amidst the crowd. Now, the thing is, I do believe that the cities of Yarra and Darabin and are already onto this. You know, they're already thinking about how, how to reduce social isolation. And if you look around, you do see black tracks and you do see attempts made to bring people together, like we just had last night, white night, you know, and, and people gathering and, I guess, festivals and that appeal to all ages, you know, and um, you, you see uh, community services popping up all over the inner north. But there's one thing not mentioned in either of the articles, and I never really expected it to be mentioned either, and that is the very one thing that will ultimately bring the greatest impact to changing the, the, the evils of social isolation, and that is the role of the church. Because bringing healing to socialised isolation, that's our bread and butter as the church. It should be, at least. We worship the God of reconciliation. We worship Jesus who broke down social walls and brought people together. And I'm convicted that, that we need to be at the heart of the remedy of this issue of social isolation. We need to do it not just to fix social isolation, but because we want to see people have a new life in Jesus. Uh, we want to join, we want people to join in with the Jesus community. So the question is, what's holding us back? What, what, why would we not, 
Why would we just sort of not eager to jump in and do something about this? Which brings us to our passage, James 2, the second half of James 2. Let's see what he has to say, because he does have something to say about this. In the first half of James 2, he makes an argument that if you really love God and your neighbour as yourself, then you're not going to show favouritism to rich people. Why? Because God loves the poor. They're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, if you show favouritism to the rich, you're effectively a lawbreaker. So, James says, speak in humility as a person who has been shown mercy and show mercy to others. Show no favouritism. And then he poses this question in verse 14. He sort of delves deeper into this dilemma. Why would Christians be like this? And the question is this. Can you have a genuine faith that does not have as part of that faith good deeds? Can that sort of faith save you? Is, is that an effective faith? He's actually saying that someone can call themselves a Christian um, and that person can have faith or they might not actually have faith. Some faith is genuine, some faith is actually false. And by deeds, he's talking about specifically a correct response to God's law. And as we will see in the passage, he gives examples of um, showing hospitality and mercy and not showing partiality. So can you have genuine faith without being active with your good deeds? Well, he, he goes to explain himself with a hypothetical situation. He says this in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So no is the answer. Real faith has to be accompanied by good deeds. So in this example, there's a financially poor Christian who receives only words of encouragement from their fellow Christian brothers and sisters who have got more money, people in their church, that's all they receive, words of encouragement, but no action. What does that say about the other people's faith in the church? You can imagine, everyone's gathered um, in the time of James in the first century in someone's house, there might be 40 or 50 people there, old and young, rich and poor, and there's probably more people with, with money, not necessarily really rich, there's the richest person's probably the person who owns a house, but there's people, you know, respectable, dressed nicely, smell nice, good hair, and there's a few poorer people sort of scattered around, and they sort of are polite to each other, but not necessarily um, wanting to get too close. And then church finishes, and there's, um, they talk about how the sermon was okay. It was, you know, five out of ten today. The music was a bit too loud, and I didn't like that song, um, but the coffee's good. And um, they're talking to each other, and they say encouraging words. Oh, it's nice to see you, Jack, today, you know, they say. Um, it says the, the wealthier Christian to the poorer Christian. Jack says, oh, it's nice to see you. Um, but nothing, it doesn't go beyond that. There's no invite over to my house after, after church. There's no offer of help in your life. There's no, um, you know attempt to go beyond some sort of halfway conversation. There's no attempt to cross over. James looked at, looked at this kind of scenario and says, that's not real Christian faith. There's no evidence there of any kind of sacrificial love or action. Your faith is not real, if that's what you're seeing. Perhaps you don't have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. 
You mustn't have yet encountered the real Jesus in your life because if you had, there would be evidence of it by how you live. Real Christian faith results in action. It causes a response. The Christian has experienced love, forgiveness and grace, so they respond by showing that to others. So why would the person who calls himself a Christian, who says with their mouth, I believe in Jesus, why would they avoid action? It's good to think about this. The reason why is because, well, it's relatively straightforward. It spares us the embarrassment for having to radically change our lives or our relationships. We can just maintain our worldly lifestyle and not be inconvenienced. Um, we, we can you know, show love to each other if we look the same, smell the same and have the same education. But showing love to the poor person in our midst requires personal sacrifice. It's not easy. We don't want to be inconvenienced. And so the end result is social isolation continues. The people come to church, but social isolation continues within the congregation, which is sad. We go home to our separate homes with our family or friends. Perhaps we live on our own, so we don't mind because we've got our friends and we go out for coffee. But the lonely person, the poor person, the person on the margin remains on the margin. Okay, so that's kind of fairly clear what James is saying. Now, embedded in what he's saying is what I call a chicken and egg sort of situation here. He's saying that faith without good deeds is dead, but he's saying this to inspire good deeds in the Christian as well. This is not a hopeless message. There is one simple application to this passage, and that is to live out your faith with action. The Apostle Paul, now he, he's, he's put, you know, put everything on the line for this kind of idea that goes like this. You can read about it in the book of Romans and elsewhere, that good deeds actually, you can't earn brownie points to be saved with, by God. You know, it's not like God's watching you and says, well, Peter, he's helped an old lady across the road and he's you know, given you know, $10 to World Vision so he can go into heaven. It doesn't work like that. It's actually only faith in Jesus and what Jesus does for us on the cross by his grace, his love for us. That's the only way we can be saved, what God does through Jesus. Uh, our deeds actually evidence of that. At school, we had this idea called prefect points. It was not actually an official thing, but everyone talked about it. In year 11, you know, if you, did, if you joined the debating team, you get a, bit, a few prefect points. Uh, if you did the school play, a few more prefect points. Played in the cricket team, a few more prefect points. Involved in some kind of social fundraising activity, a few more prefect points. The idea is, is hopefully the teachers are watching and the other students are watching. And then at the end of year 11, I'll get voted in to be a prefect, right? Earn your way to the top. But you can't do that with God. There's no salvation points. But if your faith has become stale, if you don't feel God's presence in your life anymore, good works can bring it back alive again. For example, I know Bethany's mum, Annie, is passionate about the work of uh, the Christian aid organisation Compassion. Now I'm sure for Annie, in her involvement in that and her experience in, experiences in that, that has brought her faith, it's stirred the pot of her faith 
and made her faith alive, amongst other things that she's been doing. I know Jenny, for example, just led on a Christian camp over the summer, she, she's leading teenagers, by, by getting involved and putting her faith into action. That actually keeps her faith alive, and she comes home from the camp and said, oh, they were pretty annoying, but man, it was an awesome camp, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Her, the faith fire in her heart is stoked, you know, that kind of idea. So you can't earn your salvation by good works, but good works will bring your dormant faith back to life. You want to stoke the fire, give away all your money to someone in need. That's a good way to stoke the fire. You want to stoke the fire, start a workplace Bible study. I just heard that um, Benjamin uh, Andrea, who's you know, uh, the head of the French literature department at uh, Monash, he and a couple of friends have started uh, a professor's Bible study in Monash. And he's like, it's really exciting. And, PhD students come and, and, and all the academic science department, humanities come. We talk about what it means to be an academic and a Christian. His fire is stoked. Next time you see a homeless person, sit down and talk to them. Don't just sort of walk by and go, I'm sorry, mate. Act, respond, do something good. And James says with his example that we begin by doing this at church. You, you sort of rehearse it at church. If you can get it right at church, you'll get it right with people not from church. We begin by revealing our true faith by good works, by selfless love towards those who need a church. Jesus demonstrated this by his treatment of outcasts, what this looks like, his interaction with marginalised women, his friendship with the hated tax collectors who worked for the Roman Empire, and then he also was friends with the zealots who were the enemies of the Roman Empire. And he was able to bring all these people together by just being active. That's how we've got to be active and transformative in the neighbourhood like Easton Doe. That's how we respond to social isolation, the culture of separateness. Don't make excuses because that's going to be your impulse to make excuses. Look at verse 18. James anticipates the excuses. But someone will say, you will have faith. Presumably someone in his church has actually proposed this to James. You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, all Jews had to say to demonstrate faith was that um, God, something along the lines of God is one. Um, you can read it in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. But by itself, that confession of faith, that's not going to save you. By itself, that confession of faith will not save since even the demons who recognise God for who he is, can say that. And then they shudder. They cannot fulfil, though, the second part of what the confession is in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So it seems actually what James is saying, there's three responses uh, to having faith. You can have a faith that is confessional but actually has no actions, no good deeds, and therefore dead. You can have faith that is confessional that leads to evil deeds, like what the demons do. That's what he said. Or thirdly, and you don't want that one, a faith that results in good deeds, which actually can save. So are you, are you type one or type two or type three? Are you type one, faith separate from good deeds? Are you type two, faith resulting in evil deeds? Hopefully not. You may as well be type three, faith that results in good deeds. And this applies to everyone, this principle. And he goes on to explain how it does. 
Because the passage concludes in verse 20 to 26 with two contrasting examples. He's got the great patriarch Abraham, who this applied to, and this relatively unknown prostitute called Rahab, who, if, you, if there is a social scale in Israel and the history of Israel, which there's not, but if there were, Abraham would be at the top probably, and Rahab, the prostitute, would probably be on the bottom, yet still um, a converted Jew she was, and actually ended up in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew, I think it's recorded. Abraham was the great friend of God. He was the first of the patriarchs, and he showed the ultimate act of faith in that very famous but very shocking incident where God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your, your son Isaac. And Abraham, in his grief yet unwavering faith, acted on what God told him to do. And he went to offer up Isaac on the cross, on the cross, on the altar. But then God intervened and said, no, he provided a ram instead. And God was satisfied with Abraham's amazingly focused faith that was resulted in action. At the other extreme end of the social scale, Rahab, she was not very well known, but a prostitute converted to Judaism. And she saved herself and her family by assisting the Israelites in entering the Promised Land. And it gets mentioned again in Hebrews 11. Um, she was remembered as, as, a, as a great example of a person who lived out their faith in action. And there's lots of examples like this you can give. Like, listen to this bit from Hebrews 11 um, when the writer of Hebrews goes on a massive rant, and I'll read it like a rant. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who thought who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. Sorry about that. They were killed by the sword. They went, you should, presumably if you sword in two, killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The word was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes. And in, the world, sorry, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. There's so many examples you could give from the Bible. People lived out their faith. So if you land somewhere between the greatness of Abraham and the lowliness of Rahab, this principle that James is saying applies to you. And those other examples from Hebrews reminds us that if you show your faith through good works, you will be exalted, not necessarily in this life. You might be sawn in two, but in the next life, you will be exalted. Going out on a limb with people, Taking a risk, it might cause you humiliation. It might be costly. It might even cause a bad reaction. You might even be persecuted. But this is what real faith looks like. And today, if you think about it, many Christians, I think we run the risk of thinking that faith means nothing more than private, individual views. I mean, even the commitment to gather on a Sunday for Sunday service like this, for some people, even that's a struggle. And uh, you might come once a month and call yourself a regular Christian. But James, I'm sure, would look at that and say, hmm, it's a bit wobbly. I'm not sure 
If that's real faith, now, 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 are we being legalistic here? Let's think about it. Apply what James has said. He said, if you can't even, you know, show love to your Christian brother in need, then I'm not sure if you're really a Christian. Well, you can't show love to your Christian brother in need if you're not regularly meeting with him, can you? In the early 20th century, the Lutheran pastor, pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I don't think we've got on the bookshelf at the moment, but sometimes we do, he contrasts the idea of cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is a kind of faith that does not necessarily lead to actions because it does not demand a changed heart. Cheap grace, he says this, it means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as a Christian conception of God, an intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness, but without requiring any kind of repentance. It's baptism, like we've had today, but without any kind of church discipline. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living in incarnate. On the other hand, Bonhoeffer says that costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. He says what I've been saying this morning, which is this, only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes. I'll say it again. Only he who believes is obedient, he or she, and only he or she who is obedient believes. <coughs> Jesus called the disciples. What did they do? They said to themselves, Jesus has called us. No, they stood up, put the nets down and walked. There was action. They used their legs. Obedience both precedes faith and it is a consequence of faith. So to finish, if we want to have faith that is alive, if we want to see our neighbourhood transformed in the name of Jesus, if we want to bring healing to the problem of social isolation, we need to get up on our feet and respond. Let me finish with a prayer. Lord God, uh, we pray that we can stand up on our feet. (coughs) We pray that we can be a church that's not just sitting around intellectualising the gospel, saying words but with no action. We thank you for the examples that you put before us in the Bible, Abraham and Rahab and many, many others, and ultimately Jesus Christ himself, who perfectly showed us what it means to live out the gospel in action. We pray as a church that we can continue to do the work that we've been doing to fulfil our vision, to be present in the community, like East Indo, transforming people's lives. We pray we can be more bold and have uh, more zeal. Amen. Mm